0: This is a loving robot podcast, recounting tales from EverQuest directly from the people who worked on it. And now here's your host, Sean Lord.
1: Lori, okay, so, um, so yeah, I, um, let's see where to start. Um, I've been thinking about this all day long, so now I've gotten all of it. <laughs> um, so let's see. I'll give you the, the long, the long story. <laughs> Do it. Give um, us the long story. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. I was uh, I was working at a bakery. I was as a baker, and a friend of mine uh, who worked at a game shop at a uh, electronics boutique uh, back then uh, got a job at 99 Studios as a tester, and he was telling me about this new uh, awesome game um, that sounded really cool. And they were looking for testers, and the idea of working for uh, a game studio was just, um, it was like a fantasy. It was like being an astronaut or something. Uh, so I was really into it. I played tons of video games growing up, and uh, I got a job there as a tester at 99 Studios uh, during the very, very end of Alpha of EverQuest. I think the next day I... The second day at work was when we went into beta for EverQuest, and uh, it was for that first month. It was the, the best job I've ever had. It was I just came in and played video games. Like literally, played video games. This video game, you know, for a shift. Yeah, you know, I they had uh, snacks there. Like you could just have hot chocolate whenever you wanted. Uh, it was it blew my mind as a early twenty thing kid. Uh, it was super fun. Um, then uh, I I moved to as a tester on a uh, Cyber Strike two. Uh, Clint Worley was the producer on that. It was this mech kind of uh, kind of game. It was super fun, especially multiplayer. And uh, we worked on that for a little while when I had my first experience with um, like a 30-hour shift working on a master gold disk for for CyberStrike. Uh, And uh, then we went back to EverQuest when that shows. And around that time, they started, they needed uh, customer service folks. So I went from being a tester to working in customer service, and I was... um, one of the first GMs when we uh, first launched in 1999. Um, so yeah, I was uh, I was uh, one of the first GMs. Uh, my GM name was Irradial. It was a GM on Bristolbane. GM on a few servers. Uh, I was a GM on Talonzec for a little while. Uh, that was fun, uh, and. So they were starting to work on Kunak right away, and I know that they were, they, the design team was asking, you know, the customer service team, okay, like, hey, we need content, so, um, you know, if you're interested, just write some stuff and we'll, we'll help you get it into game. And that's the birth of the apprentice program. Uh, Bill Coyle and uh, Tom Wells and Kelsey McNair had, they were all, they knew Brad and uh, they you know, did that pilgrimage from Florida all the way over oh, to San Diego that's right it was Florida yeah they, they, Tom told me that they, they drove across country in three days <laughs> to, to work on EverQuest uh, in one car all, all of them taking turns driving um, that's amazing <laughs> yeah And they uh, so they, they did the hard work to, to put to come up with those ideas and then got into that first program and for me I, I was interested like yeah I really I want to you know write content for the game too um, but around that time Homeworld that uh, space RTS and it was super fun and I just kind of was more into playing than I wasn't doing that work so they they had that they grabbed that first opportunity. Um, so fast forward, to, um, you know, I was GM for a long time, and uh, at one point, uh, you know, the bill came to me after Kunark had launched, and was like, "Hey, we're going to um, we're doing these things called epic quests, and we just need the right um, these just big uh, these big epic quests that should take you know these." You know, world standing quests that, you know, are for the world. Um, so do you want to, want to write some stuff for the, for those? And I was like, yeah, that sounds really cool. And, uh, I had, I had done some reading in like Native American kind of shamanism a little bit. So I um, started working the shaman epic quest. And when I say started writing, I, I basically just kind of hunched around and had some basic ideas in my head, but I didn't really do any any uh, real work on it. Um, and there was one, there's one moment I remember that I wanted to talk, that I wanted to talk about. It was uh, Baldur's Gate. the first Baldur's Gate had just been released. So I was playing that and it was after work, I was sitting at my desk at work playing Baldur's Gate and, um, that, you know, while they were waiting for me, you know, to, to write the Shaman Epic Quest, which I was just kind of sitting on. And um, Tom Tarazis, is at that point, had become kind of a, a lead. Uh, you, remember, you remember Tom Tarazis, right?
0: Yeah, I remember Tom.
1: Yeah. So he comes up behind me, and I, and he had been there since the beginning, but I really, like, he was a nice guy, but I didn't really know him very well. He didn't really share you know, he didn't really click, like I did with, like, Bill and Tom and those guys. Um, but he came up behind me and saw me playing Baldur's Gate, and, um, he was like, Hey, Jeremy, what are you doing? You have this unique opportunity to, to get into, you know, to grow and get into the, um, as a, as a designer, and you're sitting here playing games. <laughs> um, and he, he just walked away, and I thought about it for a minute. I was like, God, he's right. I'm just sitting here playing this game, you know, really doing something special. I quit. <laughs> that moment, I quit playing Baldur's Gate and brought up my Word document to start writing with the Shaman Epic Quest and wrote the whole thing. Uh, I was really inspired in that moment, and uh, um, that kind of got me into the apprenticeship program. Um, people really liked it. I remember talking to Bill Tru, you know, what shaman were in the game and what their lore was and stuff like that. And that was really cool. Uh, I was really into that. I also then wrote the uh, monk epic quest. Uh, I, you know, I was really interested in Taoism, and um, the first, <laughs> the start of the uh, sh- the monk epic quest is a reference to uh, the Dao De Jing, which I. At the time, that was really interesting. Um, so that kind of got me into the, in the door as an apprentice. Uh, you know, we discussed that before. Is that you would work ten hours of overtime just doing uh, designer stuff, um, and then you, the rest of your time was as a as a GM. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not looking at the Twitch stream, so I don't know if No, it's are...
0: fine. It's fine. What I was about to tell chat was uh, we're, we're recording the questions as they come up. I've got them over here. Don't worry. They're not going to get lost. Um, Everill, thank you for the follow. Thanks for being here. Yeah, Jeremy, I'm also writing down questions for you as you okay. talk because there's some stuff I'm like, oh, I want to get back to that. So.
1: Yeah. But uh, so I, I apprenticed for a long time. Uh, a lot of up to that point, apprentices would you know apprentice for six months or something before they, they, they a, a rec opened up for a new designer on the queue. Uh, so I was a design. I was an apprentice for like a year, and I was you know I was the, the lead uh, apprentice designer for a little while. Uh, you know when Paul Carrico and, and those guys were were new apprentice designers. Um, and then uh, I was sitting there one day, you know, as an apprentice, I, um, a lot of post-Kunark stuff. I, I went back to the kind of the old classic world and fixed a lot of broken stuff. Um, you know, I tweaked with the, uh, uh, those up the quests a little bit, those two. And My um, work in Velia, so a lot of the work I did was ended up in Velius. Just kind of random stuff I, I didn't I was apprentice still so I was just kind of entering in some random quests here and there um, some Kunar stuff I added uh, I think there was a, a warrior uh, XR uh, like armor quest that I did that was a lot of fun you mentioned the the Naganata quest that I spent a lot of time in that was kind of like the higher level not epic quest.
0: Yeah, dude. Dude, yeah. Cause,
1: that, so that was really cool, too. I did. Yeah, that was cool.
0: That was, like, the first thing I remember. So, like, my first yeah. exposure to the EverQuest design tool database was you late at night. Like, the lights were out even, I think. Because uh-huh. I think it was just, like, Ruth and Chris. And they turned the lights out and listened to music. They were the night jams. and. Right you're still working and you were nice enough to like, let me actually start to look over your shoulder. And I think you are working on that at the time. If I remember that quest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are a couple questions I rolled in. And I feel like you've, you've got quite a history. So we're, we, if we just go, you know, like it's going to, we're going to have to come all the way back. I'd almost rather pause and hit okay. some of the questions related to the stuff that you just mentioned. Um, cause I have a few and then some have already rolled in. Um, there's sort of a general question, um, that came in from, uh, Brandon Nemo was Brad accessible or off limits in the early days.
1: Uh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I do have something to say about that and something else i thought about, especially, you know, when he passed away recently, I was thinking about thinking about him and, um, I had no interaction with him. I don't think I had one direct interaction with Brad. I uh, saw him in design meetings. Uh, I'd heard about you know him in design meetings and getting really angry and things and all that stuff, but... Uh, had any direct inter- interaction with him. I know he did with, her, with the other people, but um, I don't think he was like in touch with the apprentices a whole lot, maybe. I, I don't know. Hmm. And I think that there was a reason for that. I don't, I don't think he, he liked me <laughs> very much um, for all reasons. I, as a GM, I made a couple of mistakes. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> stories, and all. I'll tell them now because they're funny. Uh,
0: One of them came up, I think, in an earlier guest.
1: Oh, really? Um, <laughs> so, back in beta, we were um, we were testing. We had a we had the chat servers, and so the servers were down. You could go into the chat server and talk with people. Um, you could do, you know, it. It was like a AOL chat room, and we were testing that out. And so they were, they wanted to. to to really test the load, you know, so they wanted everybody to spam everything, all the beta testers. They'd spam a whole lot, just see it crash the the chat server. And, um, uh, you know, when a GM would speak in chat, it would, you know, you'd have like a it highlight, it was highlighted in white or something. I kind of got carried away in, the, uh, in that spam. So I started spamming, In chat, and I decided um, to kill your parents, worship Satan. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, in in the chat room where it was spamming, it was just you know, it got lost in the the feed or whatever. In the other rooms that had fewer people that weren't spamming, you would just see this giant block of of GM spam that said, Kill your parents, worship Satan. and I didn't know this, but apparently Brad is a fairly religious guy, and he had a friend who, was in the service, and he his friend called him up and was like, "Some GM just spammed something about worshiping Satan. And, uh, Jeff Butler called me into his and had to uh, give me the business. So <laughs> I was it was really stupid. I you know, I think so. From then on, it just gave. You know that that was what people remembered and you got by. You know, I I think Bill told me later on, like, yeah, we we were we brought you up as to begin a, a GM sometimes, but everyone, you know, you know, wasn't Jeremy the guy that did the kill your parents worship Satan thing? <laughs> so I always got shut down for that. Uh, it was
0: tough back then because I had I had facial piercings in my sleeve, <laughs> and so true story, like. Um, after I'd been apprenticing for a bit, uh, one of the people—and I won't say who—but I'll just say one of the people took me aside and was like, "Hey, man, uh, we really like your work, but the tattoos are one thing, but but the lip rings are a bit much. I don't—I don't know if you can get on the team with the facial piercings." And so it was like one of those moments where I was like, oh, wow, I was not expecting this to be my barrier to entry. Um, And, yeah, eventually they went and people got to know me a little bit better. But it was it was it was definitely different. It was like it was like culturally, it was still such a small group of people and you kind of had to fit in.
1: (laughs) About that, I'm surprised to hear that because it was—I felt like it was a fairly, you know, it's a video game studio. I felt like it was fairly liberal I'm surprised that that was an issue. Yeah, I don't was, even remember you having um, facial piercings. Yeah, it just, now it's it, like no, 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 no piercings nah. all over the place, no one cares.
0: Well, they didn't care about any of my other piercings. They just didn't <laughs> see them. Um, just kidding guys. Uh, so before we go too far, dude, so the, the chat, if you're not seeing it is response was, God damn, I'm so happy to hell. Satan story came full circle. This is a magical (laughs) day. Um, (laughs) glorious, absolutely heroic. Um, pretty, pretty tough first impression to break away from a lot of applause and yes in chat for that story. So,
1: yeah, yeah. So that that uh, that really painted me negatively. Uh, and then after I became a, an apprentice, I, I did this design idea that Brad did not like at all. Uh, and maybe I don't remember if you were there at that time, but you know there was a one of the things I really didn't like about EverQuest is people. people there was some imbalance issues, uh, uh, and people you know, they gravitated towards certain zones and totally left other zones unused because they were whatever. They were. Was, there was something wrong with them. And so my thought back then was like, part of the problem was there, it's really, really risky to go to a zone by yourself or with a group and lose your corpse somewhere. Uh, all of your stuff. And it was really a harsh uh, penalty. So the risk was just so... Um, around corpse retrieval. So I had this idea that you could uh, get in a place for long enough in some zone that it, in a dungeon that we could flag that it would um, be teleported to the zone entrance so it, it wouldn't be such a, a terrible risk with losing a corpse in, an, in a zone that didn't have a high population. Um, like Connor's castle or something, you know, some of the other zones. I sent this email out to everybody and a few people were like, yeah, cool and it's really easy. The lore would make sense, you know, like the the inhabitants of the dungeon corpse down. So they drag into the zone line to get rid of it. Um, So people were into it and were ready to, to make that a thing. And, and then Brad responded to the email, you know, CC'd it, and was like, this is the stupidest idea <laughs> I've ever heard. It breaks everything, the kind of interdependency that we want in the game. Um, it, it creates a, a penalty, you know, like where now if you die, you have to have some amount of time for your corpse to show up at the zone line. Uh, so it made sense, you know, like, that was a band-aid issue to fix the bigger issue that some zones just weren't really um, just had to keep, get reworked they weren't viable dungeons the population wasn't viable so after that uh, he uh, you know painted that I didn't make good design decisions and then one, I'll tell one last story and then move off from that and then also uh, we used to play this, uh, we had a group Magic the Gathering uh, kind of session that a lot of us played and uh, we had these big um, free-for-all group games and Brad was part of it he, he always had like the really high-priced like badass decks with like dragons and angels and stuff and uh, there was one game I was playing this I was a pretty new player and I had this big dumb green deck and I decided I was going to try and kill Brad He was sitting next to me <laughs> And because he, he was always a big threat, and I could kill him. I had a, I had a lure that I could uh, kill him with. <laughs> so I attacked him. I killed him in one hit with all my big, fat, green creatures. And he was pissed off. He was so mad at me. He scooped up his cards and said, like, I can't believe I got killed by a lure. And he scooped up his cards and went home. <laughs> he didn't say another word. Everybody was quiet. Like, it was... Uh, I'm angry. and uh, the very next turn Bill Fisher actually killed me to get vengeance on me for killing his <laughs> friend <laughs> he killed me with a nightmare the very next turn it was great <laughs> so I, I didn't have a, like, any relationship with, with Brad but I do remember uh, hearing him talking about how people were so uh, vehement about the decisions they were making and that that really recognized him for me. It was a moment where he was just going off about how people were saying, uh, you know, like people are going to quit your game and then you'll see, you'll pay, you'll pay for the wrongdoing you've done against the player. He was, you could tell he was, uh, he was really hurt by that. You know, he, he wanted, he was trying really hard to make a game that he thought people would, would love and enjoy. And, was making the right decisions to to for the game, and people, you know, in the forums were just you know, all that kind of vitriol that you would see in the forums. And he read that every day, and it really, uh it really hurt him. So that that made me respect him, you know. Yeah. As the, the vision and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But those are those are my Brad stories.
0: That's to your- here. No, man, those are very, very human stories that allow us to get, I think, uh, it's nice to get a lot of different views. I'm kind of hoping that over time we can get as many different vectors sort of poking back into history as possible so that we can get something that feels like a little bit more of a complete picture, if that makes sense. So no, it's, it's good to hear. And, um, yeah, I mean that's. Well, we'll get back to the other questions. There's some definitely some Shaman quest questions, stuff like that. But the you know the the memories you just shared are pretty irreplaceable. Uh, is that the right one? Un, Unreplace, irreplaceable. Yeah, I think I used English <laughs> right. I've been in Europe for five years, um, and uh, DC Ray Baugh says thank you for being so open about all your memories, good and bad, Gibbs says that was deep thank you for that um turnip gin i love jeremy already there we go <laughs> yeah
1: just reading the, the comments now i, I, oh, I mean right brad, brad uh rage quit at magic that's that's what happened
0: that's what happened <laughs> if that happened it happened dude so <laughs> um the before we go much further, uh, because I've got the feeling like as we dig, there's going to what I'm noticing with a lot of discussions is we can dig and we'll wind up in an area for a while. Um, so what I want to make sure is we don't miss this stuff from earlier, because uh, there's actually a decent amount there. A couple of questions I have as well as what chat had. Um, so one question from Turn of Jim was, what was the basis for making the Shaman quest so faction heavy? It's rather unique to the others in that sense.
1: Uh, I I remember uh, talking to Lawrence Poe about this, because, you know, there's a, one of the issues that EverQuest has is that you can't, there's no, you can't do a quest and then it be done. Like you, once you do a quest, you can do it over and over and over again, Uh, which is why so many of the EverQuest, the early EverQuest quests are like, you know, turn in four bone chips, you know, you can just do it over and over. There was no mechanic in shut off the quest for you. And so with the Shaman Epic, I really wanted their hard kind of progression through it. Um, because it's funny when you read you know, the EverQuest wiki pages now or Alakazam back in the day, it was, there were all these workarounds, oh, you can just cheat your faction by doing this and you can skip whole swaths by, you know, fudging this faction thing. So the Lawrence had to create uh, a whole new faction, I think called the the True Spirit Faction or something. It was just, it was a mechanic where I tried to make that hard progression. So when you completed a certain uh, uh, step of the quest, it would give you a very specific faction that you couldn't get any other way. Uh, and the next step of the quest required that certain level of faction to complete, um, and the steps in the faction so enormous that there was no way to fudge it. Essentially, um, so that's kind of why it was. You should have been able to just complete it straight to you know from front to back without having to do any like faction grinding or anything. So I don't know if they, it's not, if that's what they're talking about, but
0: you got a you you did get a thank you for answering that in chat so I think it addresses the question
1: Um, yeah there was one step where you you could essentially you know do the first step of the quest like 100 billion times to be able to skip the next one but it was just easier to uh, to just do the quest how you were supposed to do it.
0: right on yeah, Keeb said, might be happy to know they have made the Shaman Epic non-multi-questable. Every Shaman must do the full quest to get their own tier. Um, so Goodman says, because I'm reading this one straight out because it had um, to do with a sound glitch earlier. You are cutting out a little bit. Did you do the Monk Epic?
1: Yeah, Epic as well. Uh, that I did a lot of actually implementing it as well. The Shaman I just kind of wrote, and then somebody else, I don't know who, pretty much implemented it. But I worked on uh, the Shaman, the Monk Epic. The, the inspiration behind the Monk Epic was, was more sort of like a bruised, uh, game of death movie, where you just sort of find you know, you're like going up the stairs to the different levels so. Master, uh, um, to be honest, I feel more inspired by the, epic than the monk epic. So, I you know, I always I liked the monk, epic, and I'm sorry, the shaman, I better than the monk epic. But, you know, it's a lot of my GM character was a monk, I liked the idea of monks.
0: Yeah, your your GM character was a monk that walked around with a fishing pole if I remember correctly. Yeah. That was your weapon. That yeah. was your GM badass weapon and it like perfectly summarized, like summed up your attitude. And I was the GM on the server after you left and everybody reminded me of the fact that you're so much cooler. They're like It was a radio, right? A radio.
1: Yeah, a radio.
0: A radial. A radial wouldn't do it this way, man. He was a lot cooler than him. Why are you being such an asshole? Like, I had to deal with that. Um Let's see. The other question was from Sierra Rocco. Oh my god, what is the broken arrow for?
1: Oh what I'm so glad someone asked that. What is the broken arrow for? Uh nothing. <laughs> um can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. I was expecting you to laugh at that.
0: Uh, I was laughing. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: the broken arrow. Uh, so maybe you can speak to this too, as as a designer. Um, but a lot of my inspiration in, in writing war stuff uh, came from music I was listening to at the time. Um, you know, if I were if I was writing like troll bad on a quest i was listening to slayer and tool and stuff and i was writing high elven quest i was listening to uh, dead can dance or uh, Cocteau twins or something like very sing-songy and um when i was writing the shaman epic i was listening to uh, <laughs> was Young. Uh, his like best of album neil
0: young you broke up neil for a young. second yeah. neil young okay oh,
1: yeah neil young And uh, there was a song called Broken Arrow, where he talks about Broken Arrow. It's a beautiful song. It's really weird. Uh, It, you know, kind of references this Native American kind of thing. And that that was the inspiration for the Broken Arrow. I just wanted to have a Broken Arrow in the game because of this Neil Young song. (laughs) Yeah, And I, I had the idea that, you know, you would use the Broken Arrow later on for, for something. And I know that they were they were doing a, um, you know, there was a, supposed to be like 2.0 epic quests. And I remember talking to the UK team to use the, the Broken Arrow in one of the 2.0 quests. But by that time, you know, it had been so long, people had probably destroyed the Broken Arrow. Uh, but, but that was, that's the inspiration for the Gokinera. Like it was somewhere, but it didn't. And it was just a reference to that, to that song. So if you kind of want to get into the movie, Shaman the Quest, check out uh, that song.
0: <laughs> now you know what music to listen to while you quest. Dude, that's great. Um, what was your favorite Shaman race? And that was from ABQ SC two.
1: Um. Well, I I've, uh, I like the troll shaman. I um. I had a, 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 I have a, a loby shaman in uh, Bach. A loby uh, troll shaman. Um. I just thought trolls were cool. Um. I liked that they were more kind of. Uh, cunning. They had like a cunning evil to them as opposed to, like, an intelligent evil of the, of the Dark Elves or just, like, a brute evil of the, uh, the Ogres. Uh, and I liked, I liked the shaman idea that you could be... That, the, that you could use the shaman... you could be an evil or good shaman. You could go either way. I thought that was pretty cool, and so I liked that aspect of kind of dominating the world. Uh as well as, like, working with the spirit world as, like, a party, you know. Mm-hmm. But writing the Shaman Quest, I, uh, I, I just thought what it was like to be a shaman, what it, what the experience was in the world of Morath. And I kind of wrote it from that perspective as opposed to any kind of racial.
0: Right on one more question um, this one's a GM specific question the Dantron asked um, he asked me earlier whether or not I remember who GM Zalumbus was from Terramar and if so what was he like in real life he was an absolute gooping game and made it a lot of fun and I'm trying to remember who that was the name sounds familiar though
1: it doesn't sound familiar to to me. I don't remember as Columbus uh, at all. <laughs> I wonder. But I, you know, yeah, there was a on Facebook. I have someone has a picture uh, of all the old school GMs, like that first on the first day of launch, the GM roster. And I'm going to open it up and look at it now, see if I can find out it's a Lumbus, because it doesn't familiar. There are tons of people. I don't. I don't remember. You know, it was a big team of people, especially when you joined. There was a ton of GMs. I yeah. didn't know any of those people.
0: There was at least like twenty or thirty GMs by that point, or going from like twenty to closer to thirty. Eric Moore, thank you for the follow. I'm. Uh, I wonder if that's Eli.
1: Eli. Eli Holding. Yeah. Maybe, because I do remember him, and I actually... It's funny you mentioned Eli, because I worked with him...
0: Because he's like a gnome in real life. life. What's that? He was basically like a gnome in real life.
1: <laughs> um. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I don't uh, see his Zolumbus on the, list, the original list. So he must have come later on.
0: Hmm. Yeah, because yeah, I'm thinking either Eli or Derek, but the name sounds real familiar. I'll have I to don't, dig don't think that, that was
1: Derek's name. Derek, okay. maybe it was. I
0: don't... Yeah. So I'm going to give you a heads up because time flies. Yeah. And you're at, let's see, almost an almost, uh, hour in because we started at 8, right?
1: For
0: oh, a while, wow. yeah. Yeah, so, and I'm just keeping track on your end. I'm here for a while, man. So um, definitely feel free to stay as long as you'd like, but I just wanted to give you that heads up. Um, so one of the things that, that comes up in chat a lot while we're still in the sort of GM era is best of the best, the tournaments. Mm-hmm. And I remember you being pretty involved and at least one when I was a GM, because I remember you doing a bunch of work and stuff, setting stuff up. Is that correct? Do I remember correctly?
1: I remember kind of officiating some of the best of the best, and that was yeah. that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it was like commentary on, like an eSports commentator for a little bit. That was mm-hmm. pretty fun. Um, I, I, I only recall, like, best of the best um, where it was on my side that you know it was this one monk who I who I knew and got along with and um, and then there was uh, this Ixar monk who nobody knew who he was he was just this like um, he just showed up and he was you know the, uh, the he was the enemy and he was like the enemy but he ended up winning and he, it was like a, a an upset and it was very dramatic at the time. It was really fun. All right, um, let's see.
0: Is there was there another question related to that in here, or was there a GM Island in Ocean of Tears? I don't remember that.
1: Um, Ocean of Tears? No, I don't think so. I mean, we had the little, the little interrogation rooms, you know, if you remember. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and then there was the GM Zone. Mm -hmm. Um, But but that's about it.
0: Mm -hmm. Right on. Another question about the Monk Epic is, were you guys aware that people would kill Brother Quinn and um, Zephyl for the robes and skip the sash headband quest? That was from Frank the Bank.
1: Yeah, so, um, when I wrote the monk epic, it, uh, it really just kind of, the monk epic took over, um, from the end of that, of that quest line, the whole sash headband robe thing. So that, all that stuff, I didn't have anything to do with that stuff. Um, I just tacked on and of the epic part at the end of all of that, um, I'm sure you can skip it. I know that I've (laughs) been involved in killing Brother Quinn myself. Uh, um, Yeah, that wasn't... All my stuff was just tacked on the end. The Shaman Quest Epic was a little different. I did write a lot of stuff from the very beginning to get those kind of... uh, those sew boots that you get and that shield and all that stuff. The kind of cool items you got on the way getting the Epic Quest... Uh, the monk was just really, I just wrote kind of the very end of it, where you just get the celestial fists and that's about it. That was the, if you get a turn in your last robe in order to start the, the monk epic quest.
0: So we have a question from C. Goodman. Can you ask about Raster? It's a horribly long camp, but... It is one of my best high school memories. I camped him for hours and hours on a school night and decided I had one more spawn in me. He actually spawned and I got what I needed. It was amazing.
1: Uh, you know, I, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, I don't remember. I don't even remember Raster. That, that maybe that was uh, something that happened before the part that I had written. I'm not sure. I don't remember okay. Raster.
0: Raster of Guck.
1: Yeah, Raster of Guck. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure what, what that was for. I don't remember what you got from Raster. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I see, you know, it's funny. I've been watching a little bit of the other videos that you have and uh the streams and uh there's a lot of questions about, uh this, this camp or that camp or this spawn and that spawn. i like, oh my god, it just takes where they think. There, there's a lot of stuff like that in the game where, you know, like uh, eight hours and, Um, But, you know, I'm not really sure. I, I think, you know, in the early days, I had a, a rough idea of how long they wanted you to spend playing the game because it was a subscri- subscription model and they wanted you to play it a certain amount of time. Um, so a lot of that stuff is there to kind of um, to create that content, I guess. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about that in UQA because that's about UQA because we, we kind of tried to address some of that in UQA.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, Zars and what's my PW? I'm assuming what my password. Uh, thank you for the follow. I... Oh, man, I had it. I don't want to lose it. Uh shit. No, there was a question that came up earlier, or a comment, actually, that came up earlier. Um, I think it was Turnip or somebody had said, it's amazing how much of the sort of, like... Well, I mean, honestly, the epic quests have it in their name. But, like, this is, like, key content that apprentices wound up putting in. Like, because I've admitted to doing the Beast Sword epic, and... Yeah, you know, you're you're telling the work you did on Epics as an apprentice, and yeah, it's um, it was interesting times in that regard.
1: Um, you know, I think I think that strategy, that kind of management strategy, really informed a lot of design beyond that. I think for for a lot of different people, that instead of um, people who were, you know, industry veterans, uh, they, they really looked to people who were passionate, you know, people who just wanted to play or who just loved the game and people who were energetic and just wanted to, were ready to do a lot of for free. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think it paid off for them. You know, they had a lot of people we spent hours and hours, you know, you and I in our 20s um, doing something that we were super into. But maybe we didn't have the design chops, you know, to, to really make sure it's tight. But um, yeah. the passion was there, and that really came through in the content. I feel really good about, you know, the Shaman Quest. I, I, I You know, someone posted the uh, dialogue, Uh, From that, and I I like to read that. Sometimes it's something I I like, and um, I I think just having young, energetic people—those things uh, came out in in the the product. But uh, you know, we wrote a lot of stuff. That you know, as apprentices, we wrote a lot of stuff. But we had other, more experienced designers kind of look over it and help us implement that. So it wasn't just—it wasn't just us maybe with the beast lord advocate it was kind of just you I don't know
0: I but. was always asking I mean it was it was always a, hey man I want to try this or hey I'm doing this or hey do you have any advice and when people weren't too busy I'd get answers um, but yeah um alright so questions about work in Velius What did you do in Velius,
1: um, Valleus, so yeah, the Naginata quest, which was kind of, it was supposed to be like a, like a, it was, it was, a, it was supposed to be a level 55 quest, uh, which that took up a lot of my time. It was supposed to be something big, and but not quite epic. Uh, you know, it was, it was targeted towards the player who already had kind of a raiding guild um, and, you know, could do high-end content um, it's it's we call it the Nagana, I'm calling it the Naganata Quest, but uh, it's funny how the you know we didn't have titles for quests. You know, we just made it the level 55 quest or something. Um, the play kind of made their own labels, and I think they called it the, the Dragon Name Quest. The big part of the quest was just the name of this dragon and uh, and then trap it, yeah, the spirit of Gra um, trap it in this uh, Naganana that you have to to make yourself uh, with blacksmithing and bird and stuff like that, which was I had to do some research on how uh, Japanese swords and stuff were made that was pretty cool. Um, and that was like a big sweeping quest that I really liked. a lot of other little ones there was a um, there were these like gem rock dudes somewhere in Velius, and there was a quest to make them. They were like in a. They were this collective quest to try to find out who their creator was, and they ended up just destroying themselves in this scripted thing that I wrote. Um, there was a Kromzak, like a faction quest that I made. Uh,
0: Are you seeing chat?
1: GNS, yeah. Um, I don't remember. What else? I, what else I did on Delius? So I, you know, I. I feel like it was more, but I don't. I don't remember.
0: I run into that daily about so many things. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I know I did more than like three encounters. One of which I get my balls busted for daily. Um. But yeah, it's hard to remember oh, all of oh,
1: that. The other thing I did was, uh, that was cool is Bill wanted me to go into, into the Coldain City. I forget what it was called now. What was the Coldane City?
0: Thurgoden? Mm-hmm.
1: Thurgoden, yeah. Uh, that was, Bill Coyle and I both, uh, our main characters were dwarves, so we were both kind of drawn to, drawn to the, to the dwarf race. And so he asked me to write a bunch of, um, just implement a bunch of, Flavor text and fluff in, in the zone. So he wanted every single NPC in the zone to say something. So I went and added just all of this like um, kind of uh, flavor text to hail quest or hail yeah. text for anybody. Um, that was fun. Uh, there was a there was a guy who had a website. Who was very critical of EverQuest, and he, um, I don't know, you might remember him, uh, but he, um, I I had written some flavor text for this one character who was sitting in a weapon for him, how he was uh, an aspiring adventurer, and he wanted to just go and save uh, princesses and slay dragons and stuff. He didn't want to spend time, you know, agonizing over the stats of weapons or something like that. I made mean, some reference to, to, like, uh, to gamers and stuff, and, uh, overly concerned with, um, number crunching, just in losing sight of, you know, just going and saving the princess and slaying the dragon. And he caught wind of that and, uh, posted on his website that he thought that was cool that was that was kind of neat to hear him say that and just i don't remember who that was but that was kind of my whatever was it was it long yes the mad, <laughs> Lom the mad. that's Lom right the mad, that's, yeah yeah yep, um, yeah Well, You know, I was never like a, like a big power game where, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't in the big reading guilds. I was just a casual player who just liked, um, who liked the world and liked reading and writing the lore of it and stuff. And that's kind of where my uh, specialty went.
0: Yeah. Kovac, thank you for the follow. Thanks for being here. Turnip Gin asks, did you have anything to do with Tower of Frozen Shadow?
1: I put I, I put my favorite uh, like quest NPCs in there, um, but it, I don't even remember what the quest was for. It, it might have actually been for the for that quest, but uh, it was just a ghost dwarf guy. I remember zone though as a player. I was I played him in a little bit, and I, I liked that zone, but I didn't I didn't uh, initial population or anything.
0: Yeah, we're still trying to track down who worked it on it. I've got it was for some reason I, I keep thinking that it was maybe Jason Polk or Bill Coyle. So I keep digging.
1: Um Yeah, the the dwarf that I put in there, he drops an axe called uh, Abram's Axe of the Stoic. I think it was. And um,
0: Abram's axe of the you broke up.
1: Oh Abram's Axe of the Stoic. <laughs> so Abrams uh, Abrams was the first character on my server as a GM who hit level 50. He was a level 50 he was the first level 50 character on Russellsselbane, I believe. Um, and he was uh, he was a baller. he had <laughs> he had a full suit of Rubicite, and he was dual wielding uh, screaming maces and he was just a, he was the badass of the server and he was a warrior a dwarf. On my main, so him
0: and I talked a lot, and he was pretty
1: cool. So I put in a, the a game for him. <laughs> Super cool. <laughs> um, all
0: right, so we're, I think we're caught up on questions. And so we're in the Velius era, and then I mean, it feels like we're getting close to EQA time. Like,
1: yeah, so did, you want me to transition? talk about how I uh, joined the EQA team or? Absolutely.
0: Oh, Frank the Bank. One more thing, then Frank the Bank said. Did you or the Bard Epic Creator Bill Fisher um, know that both your Carnor's epic pieces drop at the same camp?
1: Uh, no, in Carnor is it? Um, no, and it, it happens often. Uh, in classic, EQ, you know, there's a couple of uh, monsters that like uh, I've run into this playing EQ classic EQ now. Carg um, Ice Bear, who uh, is an, on an eight-hour spawn, he spawns all over Ever uh, Everfrost, so he's impossible to find. He once every eight hours, he's for a quest turn in, and he also drops like loot that people want. So. You know, whenever people are fighting over, you know, to either kill or turn and rest, and it's like it's like the best experience uh, ever. So, I, if I had known that that was happening in Carnars, I'm, I'm sure we uh, um, maybe would have fixed that. But, uh, That's but like but I don't, it's I didn't know that
0: high level coordination at that point in those days, that would have been high-level coordination. Um, One more question. Tularezer, whose idea was it to make Ixar hated by everybody?
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, that was like an early Kunark uh, development. I was was just a GM at that time. I I really don't know. I I think that was kind of written in the um, of EQ. You'd have this XR race that everybody hated. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe that was a Bill Truss thing. I don't yeah. know. I
0: have to ask him. I have to ask him. Um. Let's see. Let's let's start moving into the EQA stuff. If that's cool. Because yeah. I know we were talking about it earlier and then we can snag some of these questions as we go.
1: Um so yeah, I was uh, I was working as an apprentice, I'd been an apprentice for a while, and uh, I get an I get an email from somebody named Benjamin Bell, who I'd never heard of. He's like, Hey, you wanna come to my office and chat? And I was I have no idea who you are. Uh so I go and talk to, to Ben Bell, and he says, yeah, we're working on a EverQuest for the PlayStation 2, and we're looking for designers, or a designer, are you interested? And I was like, uh, yeah, I'd like to it. Um, And I remember I was, there was, a, Steve was my roommate at the time, and I came home and, uh, told yeah i talked to some guy named ben bell today and he's like well that sounds like that was a good conversation um who's your roommate you broke up at that point oh uh steve george okay yeah yeah and i remember you had some comments about steve george and being like richard pryor and <laughs> being with his party this party guy or something um, I, don't, I, yeah.
0: I don't know i don't know I haven't said that on a stream. I might have. Might have said that in general. <laughs> Steve was, dude. Steve is a hilarious personality. He, yeah, he's a rad guy.
1: Yeah. Um. So yeah, I uh, I, I remember people like this. Choice, this chance to join uh, to be hired as a as a designer on EQA, but I was kind of I didn't know what to. I wasn't sure about it. I was like, well, that's really weird. I don't, like, the normal path is you'd be, is you're an apprentice, and then you eventually get hired on as a designer, and that's just what we do. So the idea of moving from other parts to some other project was totally new, and uh, I wasn't sure about it. I remember talking to people, like, should I, should I do that? Should I, should I join? I think I like, what do you think? Should I join this team? He's like, "Are you, are you stupid? Of course, yes, join the team. You... <laughs> um, that's a great opportunity." So yeah, I was like, "Okay, yes, you're right. I'm going to join join the team." And I kind of had this sort of interview asking me to talk about the shamanic quest, and I sat there waxing poetic about the shaman quest for a long time. And after 15 minutes, uh, Rod was like, "Okay, okay, fine." You know what you're talking about. We want you to be a designer. So yeah, I was I was the first uh, designer, uh, dedicated designer in QOA. Um, you know they had they had an idea for the game and they needed somebody to show a lot of the um, initial kind a lot of the, the lore and stuff. So that's what I did. The first few months, I just sat. Here and, Stories about uh, zombies and dragons and uh, wizards and all that. Uh, who are else? You, are you me up there? Oh.
0: Yeah, I see. You. Um, um, who else was Who else was working with you on that at that time?
1: Um, I uh, so Ben and Rod. Uh, I know, uh, Kevin Burns was there. Kevin Burns was the, one of the original, uh, EverQuest artists, the uh, world artists. Mm-hmm. So he, uh, he ended up, uh, you know, so EQA was, uh, a prequel to EverQuest. It was supposed to be 500 years in the past from live EverQuest. Um, so a lot of the, the zone, uh, Kevin Burns made, but the fallen, he still had the old, Graph paper drawings of his uh, dungeon maps, that, and he recreated those in UTOA, which was pretty cool. Uh, so, the UTOA looks just like Buffon did on EverQuest, but you know, five hundred years past. Uh, I think he did uh, Blackboro as well. So, we had um, Blackboro as well, and I think Lower Guck or Guck he did, I think. Um, so Kevin Burns was there. Um, um, Vince Vince Harron was the was the server programmer. Uh, we, we had a lot of rock stars on that on that game on that project. Can't remember the other guy. It was another programmer who was like the best program team on, 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 in the company. Can't remember Jeff uh, Jeff Buckley. <laughs> Um so we had a lot of really, really talented people there. Um, there was this dude uh, Kai who uh, who got hired to work on the character art and stuff like that. A lot of new people that I didn't know. Um, Amanda Tar was another programmer. she was there. Um, uh, yeah, so it was a small team to start out with. Um, and So I wrote a lot of the initial content, uh, and uh, I think I don't know how long it took, but um, before we started hiring other art, uh, other designers. but um, what yeah. was what, uh, how, did,
0: how is the process different like between the two? I, I can only imagine the tool sets were different because EQ's tool set was well, spreadsheets.
1: Um, yeah, so, um, so EverQuest away, you know, we, it was a chance for us to remake EverQuest in a way that we thought was, was cool. The big overarching thing from, from the, um, from Rod was that we wanted to be able to play EverQuest's couch and, uh, you know, have it just be a casual, fun thing. Um, so, we also had this this rule that any step in the uh, any step in the uh, in any quest could only last half an hour because we wanted people to be able to log in for half an hour and accomplish something. So you know, even the higher level quest that would might take hours had to have that many steps you know broken half an hour, which is cool. That was a great idea. Um, we also wanted to reduce kind of, you know, for, for at least at the time it was either your solo or you have six people. Mm-hmm. So all the content, all the high end content was for, you know, one or not one, but six people. You had to have six people, a full group at all times to be able to accomplish much of anything. More than that in these big raids and stuff. Um, Which is a, when you think about it now, like, I can't get six people together to do anything. (laughs) Like, you know, when I was a kid playing D&D campaign, I get six people together to do anything, especially now when we're older. So um, it was kind of amazing that the game did as well with that kind of requirement. I think it was just an old legacy from D&D, like, you know, a group is six people, and that's just what it's supposed to be, so... Uh, We wanted to change that with EQA. The the maximum group size in EQA is four people. Um, I thought that was that changed things a lot. Gave each person more, a greater share of kind of power overall. Um, It made it easier to to just get together with people and do stuff because you only had four people. Um,
0: So, do you remember? Sorry. Do you remember the It's Time to State a Dragon commercial?
1: <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, that was... Um, the rumor I heard that cost $6 uh, million to, to make that commercial, $6 million, which was probably more than the development cost of the game. Uh, so we were in the hole. EQA was in the hole for a long, long time as a project.
0: I've I've seen that happen a few times, man, where it's yeah. like I've seen it with like mobile games where there have been mobile games that couldn't have cost more than a couple million to make and they had like twenty million dollar marketing budgets like straight out the gate. You know, yeah. no soft launch and just like, uh, good luck on that one guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, I, was, I was at my friend's house Saturday night. We you know, we played this we had the Saturday night DM And we were sitting there watching TV, and then suddenly the UQA commercial comes on. I'm like, oh, dude, guys, guys, check it out. It's something done. And we sat there watching it in silence for a while. And um, (laughs) my friend, he's like, that that looks really bad. (laughs) That looks really bad. And it was pretty devastating. Because I think I knew in my heart that Graphically, the game didn't look that great, uh, especially compared to other PS2 games. Um, and that was, I think, a not really understanding implementations of, of the of the platform. You know, EverQuest was a PC game where you could have you know your system requirements could be enormous, and you would just you would be fine. You try to keep them low to get more people into your game, but it is, you know, you can make it really big and you would care. But the PS2 had a really, really uh, small video RAM, basically. It was just really, really draw, pretty much, really. But EverQuest's big thing, and this came from Sned, was that, you know, in EQA we wanted you to look out on the horizon and just... On this whole big world horizon, and just run in a direction, and just keep going, and there would be no no loading screen. There would be no um, well, streaming wasn't a thing back then, but uh, you could just run. You know, they wanted this seamless world. They, they needed a seamless world, and so that put a big constraint on the uh, counts of everything. You know, you had to be able to look around this giant horizon. So everything, the polygons of everything had to be really, really tight. Wow. And it's, it's really amazing how cool things looked. The ETOA art team was, was amazing.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the small resources. A lot of constraints, pretty small team, uh, still put off, pulled off a game that was like fun. It was like genuinely fun. We were all playing it and really enjoying it. I mean, hell, people didn't have the network adapter yet, right? Like the just the whole concept of it was, in the usual Sony fashion, a bit ahead of the curve.
1: Uh, yeah, and um, you know that I think the subscription model really freaked people out. Like, you want me to pay ten dollars a month for my PS2 game? Like nobody tried that it was totally new for that audience. So I think that really scared a lot of people off.
0: We, Um, we were having that conversation years later with DC universe, right? Like that was still a conversation because it was a console game. And, you know, even, even when that came out in like 2011, it still wasn't something that most people were, uh, acclimated to on console, or at least that was the, the belief. So, You guys were out. When did that come out?
1: I had to do some homework (laughs) to find that out. Uh, I released uh, February of uh, February eleventh, which was a day after my birthday, in two thousand thirteen. And then we released the first and only expansion, uh, EQ Refight, is in November uh, that year. Uh, So around for that. 2013? 2013, yeah, I'm pretty sure.
0: Not 2003?
1: I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, 2003, yes. That was what to say. Yeah, 2003.
0: The missing no. decade.
1: Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, but the I, to go back to your question about the tools and stuff, yeah, it was... It was very different. We had a chance to kind of improve things. Uh, So Vince Vince Heron, I don't know if you ever, did you ever interact with Vince Heron very much?
0: Yeah, a lot in passing, Um, and especially when I was going through the sort of period of the the pitch period, interacted with him and Ben and and Matt um, Broom a little bit more. Yeah.
1: Um, Yeah, Vince was, you know, one of our, you know, Star programmers, I think, for the company, and he—he uh, he was the server guy. And uh, I know when he—I worked with him a little bit, but I, I'd heard that he didn't really like designers very much. He thought—I I heard that he thought that designers were just glorified testers. <laughs> so one of the things that he wanted to do in QA was to make sure that designers couldn't break anything uh so he i don't know if you remember in early EverQuest toolset, tool set, it was a form like a form mode where you can you could go to a form that would link to the different um uh, tables and stuff but the form just didn't run at all it was uh really like it was unusable it was, too it was slow. super clunky it.
0: yeah yeah so he wanted,
1: to, he wanted to make uh, a form based kind of um tool set um so that was the main thing we, we changed we made it all kind of form based and it worked and it was, it was fine it was good we didn't have direct access to the all of the SQL database kind of stuff and I know that a lot of designers who came over from UQ to help us out on EQA, like Dan Enright and Bill Coyle and stuff they kept trying to find ways to get around it and just directly access the SQL and uh, Vince and had to keep shutting them down. <laughs> Later on, they, they got the ability to do that. Um, but I, you know, I helped to design that design tool. Um, you know, I had a lot of uh, the initial kind of system, how that worked. It was just basically like a, it was like a quest with, <laughs> like you just, it was a, you just had to pick like a starting NPC and add, a, you know, link a bunch of different tables and stuff, but it was similar, but it was just to use that form uh, to, to access it. Yeah.
0: Cause I remember the form was shown to me when I first got into the database is like a way of visualizing the data. It looked like, it looked like D and D character sheets and, you know, pen and paper, just sort of sheets. Um, but it was not the, it, it, it was so much easier to just get into each one of the, the tables and run queries. And yeah, once you got to the mode where you understood what stuff was, then it was just like it's so much faster, just working in Excel.
1: Yeah. It, it, that was a problem for us actually in QA. We, it was really easy to get in and make one quest on your own. It was really easy to do that. You could you could populate a zone easily, but when you had to make large-scale ch- uh, changes to stuff, say you had to go and change the, you know, manage uh, values of every single weapon in the game or something, um, you couldn't do it. You had to go open every single item sheet over again and change each one. Um and for a while, that's what we had to do. Um, I know, you know, Michelle Butler, uh, she came on the team at one point. Um, and she didn't, you know, she didn't really come from a place that the other designers came from. She, you know, she was like the head of GM, you know, she was, did a lot of, um, personnel management kind of stuff. Um, but she, uh, that she found her niche. To, to do all that quickly, like work with this tool that wasn't really designed to make lots of major changes all at once, She you just grind through it really quickly, faster than any of us could do it. But it was, right it was a problem. Later on, they uh, they had to let us uh, access the database directly, just because you know, it was in live development. We had to make major changes. Often, yeah. You know, I
0: mean, Every every MMO I've worked on since, like, this has been a topic. And a warning early on, it's like, guys, you're working in, like, if it's an MMO, at some point you're going to be talking about 65,000 items or whatever it is, and there's got to be access to that data. Plus just workflow a lot of times if you are doing, if you need to generate 15 items or 20 items or X number of NPCs and you want to make them unique, um, it's got to... It's got to work with scale. Um, Michelle comes in. She's been in chat a few times uh, the last few days.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah. So
0: starting starting last week, I think, she um, she appeared here, I believe, last week, maybe even uh, prior. But, yeah, so Michelle's around. I'm going to try to get her on as well. Yeah, um, yeah. There is a question from Ethan. Is, so, Jeremy, what are you doing uh, now? Are you still working in games? We could work up to that, back from that.
1: Um. So. Uh, so no, no, I'm no longer a game designer. I'm a former game designer. Um. But we can kind of the rest of my career uh, quickly. Yeah. Um. So. So yeah. UQO. Um. You know. Uh. uh is expanding. Uh, the numbers for UQ UQOA were pretty cool. I think really expecting it to, to blow up, and then just didn't quite get there. Um, it, it stayed for almost 10 years, I think, which is surprising. Actually, you know, it, it eventually made money not that giant uh, commercial uh, budget, but uh, it made money. And um, So, yeah, we were working on... Uh, we released the expansion. We were working on a second in which... Was uh, which was going to be really cool, really excited about it. It was going to be uh, an underfoot expansion. Um, and at first, no one thought that would work because you would have to render the ceilings of all the uh, caverns that you would be in, uh, which is just too much rendering. You know, the game was already hitting the limit of the PS2. But then I thought, like, well. Why do we have to render the ceiling? Why don't we just use the skybox instead of drawing the sky? And just draw what looks like the top of a cavern. All right, be black, and uh, they're like, oh, okay, let's let's try it and see. And so they they put up a demo, and it looked really cool. It looked like you were in a giant cavern. Uh, so we were going to do this whole underground uh, expansion, um, but the number is just. Uh, didn't uh, add up, and so uh, so we got canceled. Um, and at that point, I they moved beyond to EQ2, where I worked for. We talked about this earlier. I yeah. well, two weeks on EQ2 until I decided. Uh, you know, I went to lunch and to Red. You remember Red at the mall?
0: You you, you broke up both times. You said the name, oh. so you'll have to say it one oh. more time.
1: Uh, we went to Red Robin. I don't remember if you remember uh, Red yes. Robin. And they had um, pints of beer, or you could they even have like a 22-ounce class, and I drank a couple of those because I was really unhappy on EQ2. So I went back to work, and I was already kind of drunk, and uh, decided I was going to write a commission letter. Like I wasn't happy, and uh, I was ready to quit. Uh, but then, uh, Jeremy Albert came up to me and was like, Hey man, what are you, what are you doing? And I told him I was writing my resignation letter and he walked away. And later that day, uh, an hour later or something, Ben, Bill, and Rod called me into their office and it's like, you know, Hey, we don't want to lose you. What, uh, what do you want to work on? You're not happy. Anymore. What do you, what do you want to work on? And I hadn't expected that they were going to do anything like that. But they gave me a chance to work on, um, what Rod was working on, which was, uh, Ancient Glory, which was like a, it was a melee based kind of, uh, combat. Um, it was, there was a, there was this MMO called, it was like a World War II MMO that had this, like, uh, ongoing campaign that would, so he, Ancient Glory was like the, version of that. So we yeah. were working on something like that. World yeah. War II online. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so we worked on that for a little while. It never got past Alpha. Uh, you know, we were this, the old EQA team kind of stuck together and we were, they were trying to like find a project and we worked on a, uh, we worked on like a supernatural kind of, uh, idea for a little while. Um, we worked on a Harry Potter MMO ID for a little while until JK Rowling decided that she wanted way, way, way more, more money. So that fell through. Then we were on uh, a, a Marvel MMO until we lost a license to some other company and then we started working on DCO. Or we didn't work on DCO, but I, I think some of the initial design that we did made it over to DCO. I'm curious to see what we see about it. You remember
0: any of that. But, um. Yeah, I, re- I remember there was some carryover there at the beginning. Yeah. When it was still, when we were still designing in San Diego before I moved to Austin, there was like looking at ideas and stuff. Ultimately, that game got redesigned, I don't know, four or five or a dozen times in the five years it took to put
1: out. So, who knows? <laughs> yes. Um,. Yeah, yeah, we we had an idea for, for for that game of having, like, offline progression, which is kind of a thing, which is now, you know, really common, but that was supposed to be kind of a thing in, in uh, the Marvel MMO we were working on. But um, let's see. So I, I bounced around, and then finally we landed kind of on a the, on the Free Realms team, so I did a lot of initial, very, very initial design of Free Realms and it was really, we didn't know what uh, did you guys hear Cat like <laughs> My cat Crusty just walked in there. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, we worked on Free Realms a little bit. Um, Free Realms wasn't, didn't really have a coherent idea yet. It, it was very and emo- kept changing a lot and uh, then I, um, I I moved to the Untold Legends team because they needed some help. Um, I worked with uh, Rich Waters on that team uh, and uh, some other some other folks, Paul Carrico again and um, John Troy and did a lot of um, scripting uh, stuff. Uh, but I think at that time I was pretty uh, burnt out. Um, you know, working on all projects and getting really into them. You know, I, I had never read Harry Potter books. And so after reading all, you know, several of those books and then having it kind of pulled away from us, it kind of pretty, kind of a bummer. So I, I really, I was at my best. I was working on Untold on Legends. And I was still, I was an EverQuest designer. So I was trying to make, I was using my EverQuest skills on, uh, on this PS3 platform that, you know, it, it just didn't quite, uh, fit. Um, so after, uh, after Untold Legend was moved back to the EQ1 team, um, for a little bit, and then I started kind of realizing that I, I needed to move on. Uh, Van Bell and Rod Humboldt left, and they were kind of like my, my, my best allies there, and so I, so I left and got a job at EA with Ben Bell, not Humble, where they, they moved to. And I worked on the Sims for a little while. We it was like a it was a weird Sims project, like side thing, supposed to be kind of like uh, YouTube, but instead of uploading videos, you would upload these little tiny micro games that you made with a with our proprietary tool. So I helped to design kind of that tool that gives like a. Uh, it was like a it was like a programming tool, that, um, kind of like you know. MIT made something similar called Scratch, We kind of used pieces of code like puzzle pieces, put them together to make like games. Um, and so we were dependent on the, the users of our uh, game to kind of create our content. But, uh, it turns out making is really hard, even micro-games. <laughs> so, most people aren't going to spend the time to, to make those kinds of uh, games, and so, um, that didn't, uh, pan well. But I moved on to the Sims 3 project for a little while, um, and worked on that. Uh, but I, I was only there for a few months before I just decided I kind of didn't want to work in games anymore. And, um, Right before the two thousand uh, economy tanked, I decided I was going to quit, uh, which was kind of a mistake. If I had stuck around for another six months, probably had been laid off with a nice fat uh, um, severance. But
0: yeah, we were talking about that last night, I think, because I had never been laid off before, and. So my first time, of course. Right. And that was 11 years in at Sony. I didn't even know. I was, like, I guess I knew I was going to get a check. I just didn't really have a concept of it until then. But yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So I was unemployed for like a couple of years living in San Francisco. Um, trying to figure out what to do. I went back to school a little bit to try to study English. And I, I started to run out of money and I got really nervous and I, uh, and I joined this team. Uh, it was uh, a startup project that was in San Francisco working on this um, this MMO. Um, and I was there for like a, a month and a half, and I got fired. <laughs> I, uh, I just straight up got fired. Uh, Eli Holding actually was there, I remember. Um, he was a designer, too. And uh, it was a startup, you know, it had a startup culture. It was very, just like work super duper hard for free and hopefully, you know, you can do well and we'll compensate you later. And they had this idea that the tool would, you know, that you would just log into the server and just, you know, you would all your design work on the server like in real time, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you're in a if you're in a beta environment on a server and you're trying to do work, like it's the server was never stable enough to actually do anything. So I don't know. It was a very it was kind of a train wreck project, but uh, and I wasn't really I didn't really want to be there either. I don't think I I think I just took the job because it was I got nervous. Yeah. I don't you know that's not something I put on my resume. It was just a it was a, a bad spot in my career. But uh, I was unemployed for a little while longer, and then I reached out to Dan Enright, uh, who I worked with on EQ, and uh, he was working on an MMO here in Boston. So I came out here and interviewed. Uh, it was a it was a very complex uh, team. We were, it was us here in Boston working alongside a, a team in China. And okay. so, yeah, it was... And they, there was a really nasty dynamic there. Like they brought us in because you know the U.S. market was so much more developed in terms of like uh, MMOs that like they just had new expertise, and they were and China was a really new market for MMO, so they wanted some expertise to kind of work with them. But they didn't really help. You know, their team didn't really want us to be there. So there was a really very combative, and it was it was a weird time. So eventually those teams split. I was working for Tencent, Tencent Boston, which is a colossal Chinese company, but nobody knows about it here, really. Uh, But after that MMO kind of got canceled and the teams split up, they were going to give us one more chance to make something, and we made a a Facebook game um, called Robot Rising. Um, It was kind of like um, like a... robots, um, which was really cool. Um but, but, you know, that team was really cool too. We got a lot of amazing talent, at least, especially the artists. But, um, it, I think we have and I'm curious to see what you say about this, Sean, but I feel like a lot of um, companies kind of have, like, a cynical approach towards uh, their player base. You know, they think, you know, look at Farmville. It's a stupid game. It's totally dumb, worthless, but people pay tons of money to play it. So we'll just like launch whatever, and people will play it. And I think that was kind of the attitude with with Robot Rising a little bit, and you know, other games like Untold Legends. You know, I know they're both. It's a it's a generation game on a new console. That those make money no matter what they are. Um,
0: I've, I've I feel like, um, I mean I, I've got the natural cop out answer for that. It is company specific and it's situational, right? And what what I think I've seen at least, and again this is just one perspective over a brief amount of time. I mean, only it's been twenty years, right? So it's still like I'm still figuring it out. The what I've seen is. Um, if it's, like, a new console release. So I'm not going to say Untold Legends was this specifically. I wasn't there for all of it. But let's just use, like, a hypothetical. In a situation like that, what might have happened? What might have happened is we have a release date. We have an opportunity to be on this thing. When it first comes out, there's going to be a pretty finite number of games. So the, the focus is... How do, we, how do we hit the date? How, do, how are we there for the window? First and foremost, we need to be there when the thing goes live, um, especially if we're not something that somebody's going to want to wait on, right? Like if, if you're the new kill zone or something during that era, fine. Then maybe you can be a little bit late or something. But even then, I'm sure they were smashing themselves against the rocks to hit the date. And then the other thing is, is there a key, what are we showing off? Is it the technology, right? Like, is it, what is the the key feature? If it's like, oh, you know, Xbox 360 or whatever, and we want to showcase live um, or online play, then it's going to be those things driving most of it. And then some of the other stuff like fun or longevity or whatever may fall in a bit behind. I think what you're describing, though, with regards to, some of the Facebook games or, Hey, whatever, let's emulate Farmville. Um I, I do think there's a, I, I've seen, especially in free to play a higher threshold for cynical sort of approach, but I've also seen um, something that's not as much cynicism as it is math. Where they're like, because I've seen some games that should not be making money, make money. And it just comes down to math on the back end. And the more I've learned about, like, user acquisition and other things, it really comes down to if we can find users at this cost and they can generate, you know, basically this much revenue and the the revenue is, you know, basically higher than our break even and we've got payout windows of X number of months and, you know, you're looking at uh, calculating return on ad spend and whatever the latest CPI of the month is, right? then cool, that makes sense. And it doesn't have to be a great game. It doesn't even have to be a good game. Um, it does have to be a game that hits the math. Um, and some of that is just region-specific or whatever. But yeah, so that's it's a long, very generalized answer. Um, I'm, I'm not excited about working at a company, even if they've got a good history of getting the math right, like a machine zone or something like that, um, because I think over time the math goes away. Like, over time, if they don't really make some shit that people are excited about, um, you know, especially people working on it, then it'll show.
1: Yeah, and it's... You know, I I use Farm Bill as an example, but I think a lot of people misjudge that sort of stuff. Bill, you know, I think people play it or they did play it because it's a fun game. You know, it's a good game, but people... Think that they're terrible for whatever reason. They, I think they misjudge it, and then they go and make you know what they think is the emulation of that game, but it, it really doesn't capture what you know what made it good.
0: Right. No, that's, a, that's a great point too because I was I was shocked at the company I went to in Germany. I met um, a fellow producer, um, Varun. Who were, were still really close friends, right? He's like one of the, my go to guys in the industry these days if I have questions about technical things that I don't fully understand, especially when it comes to like product management stuff. He worked on the various like Farmville, Yoville, Otherville games early in his career. And then he took over a game in, at that company that was Farmarama. It was like this German company and they had it. And when I saw how they operated behind the scenes, first of all, they really did love the game and they really were trying to generate like fun, cool shit. The artists did amazing stuff on this older game. And he took experience from like those early Farmville games and stuff like that and used it both on the gameplay side and the production side, just in how they ran live operations. And that team was just fantastic. You go down there, like, like, they had their shit together, um, but they also knew exactly what their customer wanted, and they had a very specific customer in mind.
1: So yeah, all right. Um, so, well, so yeah, so um, uh, I, it's when people have that understanding and really value their their player base, essentially uh, really awesome stuff. And I I, I think that. Robot Rising it was a really fun game. I had a lot of it, but it was, um, it was weird. There was no, I there were a lot of reasons that I think people didn't quite, enjoy. you know, some of my own work, I don't think, but, uh, I did like a lot of the stuff that I did on that project, but, um, uh, so they, they didn't do so well, and, um, uh, they laid off maybe three-quarters of the team, uh, including myself, so, so I was on unemployment again for a year, <clears throat> and I I got close to finding, you know, work other places, uh, but it never really fell through, so um, I started to kind of rethink what I wanted to do, you know, before I even got into the games industry, I was into, you know, I worked in a lot of food service stuff, so I really liked Food, uh, cooking food and talking about it and uh, eating it so I kind of got I started working drunk it was a lot of fun I, I'm a much better cook now than I was when I started uh, but uh, yeah I, I realized I was a little too old to kind of go down math uh, really or that's what it felt like um, you know if I had if I were 10 years younger I think I would have delved into the Like you know, food. You know, I wanted to own a restaurant or something. Um, But so now I work at uh, work at the grocery store. I work at Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's. (laughs) And yeah, yeah. And I get to food. I get to eat food. I get to. I'm a manager there, so I. It's funny they they really care about management there. I've learned more about managing people at the grocery store than I ever learned, you know, the games industry. I can imagine. You
0: know. there's a critical question in chat from Frank to bank. How do you feel about bread? This has come up in previous streams.
1: How do I feel about bread?
0: What are your thoughts on bread?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, so I had mentioned that I used to be a baker. Uh, so that's bread. right. At I, the beginning of the stream. Yeah. What years? I was a baker. I worked in an artisan, uh, bakery, baking, you know, um, uh, Beacon, like, French-style bread and stuff. Uh, I love bread. It kind of spoils you, though, when you get to eat fresh bread right out the oven, you know, all day at work. Uh, but uh, it was, uh, yeah, yeah Akil. I love bread. So, <laughs> so Akil, we'll, Oh, that's right. I've seen,
0: I've yeah, seen so we'll, bread. The yeah. end of keel stream was bread, and then we'll we'll go into the beginning of yours, where you're giving your background at, in the baker, you <laughs> know, just transition in.
1: Yeah, Keel, yeah. He was posting some really uh, some really nice pictures of bread that he was baking. And I saw that. So and I think had... you, you knew a guy who you used to work with industry and opened a bakery, right? I think I feel like I remember that.
0: Yeah, so he he almost opened a bakery. There is there's a bit of a tragic story on that one. I won't mm-hmm. I won't get into it, but uh, because Actually, I'll I'll hint on it because I'm not using any names yet. Um, So he he almost owned a bakery um, because the when he got done being a pastry chef, he left the games industry, became a pastry chef, went to school for it, and then he um, was working at a bakery when he got out of school, and um, the the guy that was running like that owned the bakery as a family bakery died. Like during that period, and they were pretty close and so I know he was attempting to buy the bakery and then the with the family it never sort of worked out but i remember I remember we went in there um and helped him like clean the place up and get it ready just in case you know and all that stuff like after after the his mentor died and um yeah, it was a real bummer because um, um he was super into it right and but since then, he's also become a sailor. And so he's like a, <laughs> he's like a sailing pastry chef. Uh, th- those are his skills now. I don't think he actually does those things together necessarily, but yeah. Um, but dude, he was amazing. It, like we'd go up there to have game night and he would cook like five different pizzas and have all this badass fresh bread. And it was just the most beautiful dough.
1: I mean- it's funny that, um, you know, I take a lot of what I learned in the game and working in a restaurant or, um, or at a grocery store. You, you're always hyper aware of the, the user experience. Uh, you know, what is the, what's the user experience You walk in the door and you're looking at this display or looking at a plate of food and you're, know, and uh, that's always drives kind of, I make outside of the game industry is just you know, putting yourselves in the, in the place of the, of the user. Yeah. So I learned I, it, some, it seems unapplicable, but uh, it is like, game design.
0: I, I have used that analogy so many times. I'm not lying. Like something about game design and food. <laughs> it's the experience and i've even i've even talked about the way that i like to cook because even if i'm making five things at once like over time you learn what to start when so that you can have everything done in the right order and you clean up as you go and so like or maybe you don't i do so by the end of it i can have like this nice meal all thanksgiving whatever done and shit's already basically in the dishwasher or clean or ready to go. No big mess counter sort of wiped down that kind of thing. And it was like a, it's to me, it was weird because game design informed how I thought about cooking, but cooking then sort of translated back into how I could improve working as a developer. If that makes sense. Yeah,
1: totally. Especially that idea of, um cleaning as you go, and that's all you're juggling, especially, like, I know you've you've worked in production for a while, and you're constantly juggling all these things off, and uh, that's what you do when you're cooking all the time. different uh, things you're working on all at the same time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and... I was just about to say the balancing act and blah, blah, blah. I was about to say some shit that's kind of obvious and redundant, so I just stopped myself. Um, Bunny says, food is a human constant and brings people together and is relatable to everyone. It's very important. Yes, I agree. Um, Sliced bread is the devil or ruined appreciation for real bread. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of bread talk going on. You can catch up in the <laughs> chat on that one. Uh, Keebs asked question, if Sean decides to make the next best game ever, are you available? <laughs> LOL, joking, not joking.
1: <laughs> you know, I, my um, my girlfriend um, asks me a lot, like, "How come you're not, you know, pursuing game jobs anymore?" And um, I haven't been in the industry for like seven years, and and you know, when I describe my uh, career, it really like you know, after EQ or, or after EA uh, my career just kind of took this slow dive and I, um, you know, my resume doesn't look very good. It looks, you know, it has like this downward kind of trajectory, you know? And, uh, I, you know, I, if I even found a job in, in game design, I don't know that I could, if I could do it, you know, like I, I do want to pursue, like, I do want to get into the modding community. Um, and that's something I'm kind of interested in, like modding, like uh, Mountain Blade and uh, um, tour and stuff like that. But um, that's the most I think I, yeah. I get into.
0: But I think that might be fun, man. Like you just put a little little time aside and keep it fun, keep it a hobby, right? Like and just go. All right, I'm going to take you know whatever it is this day a week or this day a month or whatever to just focus on it. Take it seriously, but like treat it like it is a hobby, and see if the passion's kind of there or not. Like, I think for a lot of people, you've got to do the check as well. It's like, is the passion there?
1: Because yeah, I, I, you know, some of the really the most talented people I worked with, like uh, Matt Broom. Matt mm-hmm. Broom is the most incredible artist I've ever seen, like ever, like, way on the scale of anybody else I've worked with, and. When I've worked, you know, on the Robot Rising. There was another guy, uh, Raph Besnier. Was he's an incredible artist. So when you when you see those people, you what they're they're always uh, drawing. They're always doing. Yeah. They can't they can't stop it. And I've met programmers like that who are just constantly. They're just always doing math. They're always figuring out how to do something. You know, and engineers um, You know, they're always tinkering with something, messing with something. I was trying to break something. <laughs> um, and, you know, after I got laid off, I was uh, trying to, like, keep in that. I was, like, tinkering with a board game I was working on. Um, I was, you know, talking to uh, Derek a lot because he got into board games. That's okay. right. <clears throat> um, yeah, and he had some success over there. It was pretty yeah. cool. And, uh, and I just, I hit some design walls in my board. And I just, I didn't have that, that like drive to really solve it, you know. Like I, I, I didn't want to be working on this, on this idea, constantly. And so I didn't quite have what those guys had. Uh, so it just kind of informed me as, you know, maybe I need to step away and do and do something, work on something else. So, so if you had an idea for a project, I yeah. you wouldn't. I wouldn't hire me. I don't think you would hire me, either. Not right now, anyway. Maybe yeah, after it, I, uh, mod some mod something cool. Because I, after playing EQ, all I want to do now is after playing EQ Classic recently, I want to fix it all. I just want to make my own EverQuest. And
0: <laughs> it's weird how that happens, right? Like yeah. the more I play, the more that whole joke about making a game. Seems a little bit less like a joke. And maybe I've got some stuff coming up that is, you know, potentially going to be near games, but not in games. We'll see if that stuff comes together. Um, and then after that, maybe we'll see what happens. But I'm very, I'm, I'm kind of cyclic as well. Like it just kind of, and sometimes I, I really feel it, and other times I don't, and then. When I don't, like, I also, I don't feel like I I, I really feel obligated to go to the team and be like, hey, guys, I need to do something else. Because I I don't want to be at a place just to have it be a job, just a job, right? Like, I want to be passionate about what I'm doing. Um, And I've been fortunate enough to have that opportunity to to be able to do that. Ethan says in chat, um, it took 20 years, but Wizard of the Coast bought an AD&D campaign from him um, five years ago. Wasn't much money, but they bought it, and I was happy. Um, but they never published it, and
1: yeah. Wow, that's awesome, Ethan. You. Thank you. That's badass. That's really cool.
0: And oh. to your to your thing though, my thing, I don't give a shit what your resume looks like, right? Like for me, it's about people. Um, you know, and I I, I feel like one of the things that I've at least been able to maintain some degree of passion about is working with cool people, and. It comes down to, like, people's character and sort of what they've got. Like, what they're about. I'm not as worried about their CV. I mean, CVs are typically good for if you don't know the people, trying to get some idea of who they are. Ooh, you just got super pixely. You're like a mosaic right now.
1: Internet, internet isn't, like, the best in the, in the world. but uh,
0: if you If you hold very still... Um, there you go.
1: So, so turnip said, uh, turnip, Jim. If you have any Banner lord mod ideas, hit me up. I am absolutely going to do that. That is really exciting. I, I wonder if you had the same experience, Sean. But you know, I, I'm a designer, or I was a designer, like just a designer. I think nowadays you, you can't be just a designer. You have to be a designer slash artist you have to be a designer slash programmer. you have to be a designer slash janitor or something you know you can't just be a designer
0: well that was and always they... my niche designer <laughs> janitor now i'm not even bullshitting like i was designer that was like willing to do i mean that's how i met you i'm like hey dude if you show me how to do this i'll do data entry for you right <laughs> like
1: so so yeah as a designer we're totally dependent on the artist and the programmers and the production people to actually make it happen. So, um, as much as I want to get into Banner Lord and make some changes, but, and I have said so that I want to change, some ideas. But I, I could definitely use the help of a, of a programmer to make that happen. So, Turnip, I'm going to really uh, look you up on that. And I, and I do want to make a. a there's a lot of um, like unique servers that people are like publishing, and I'm really curious to see how that all works.
0: Yeah, I mean, there. It seems like the tools are getting better; they're getting more intuitive. Um, there's more, you know. What I mean, there's more available out there, and I, I love that things like Roblox are driving that even more, and that younger generations are having it be more accessible. So, I tell you what, man, like you're in our Discord. Just keep hanging out. We'll figure some shit out. It'll be fun. Um, yeah, we
1: want to.
0: And I also, I, but I also think the stuff that we were talking about earlier offline, like, when I hit like my toughest point in the industry and in life, basically same time, nice overlap. I'm glad they came together and not separate. It would suck to do that twice, but like, um, when, when I hit that, there was also the realization of like finding the thing. That's the right thing where you actually, you feel good at night or you feel good in general. Right. And I'd also say that if you're at a point you're working for a rad company. Like it's known to be a good company. You're learning, you know, awesome stuff in terms of like management and stuff like that. I would also say that if you're at a point where you're like, Hey, I'm going to make games as a hobby, but I'm going to continue to grow and develop in the field that I'm in. then I think that makes absolute sense as well.
1: You sorry, did you uh, break up there or you still there? I might have
0: broken up on your end.
1: Oh, okay, um, yeah, I you know, I when I went to EA and started working on this project, I, I had actually it's funny, I had a, a chance to either go to EA or to go to THQ and work on a Dawn of War game. And uh, Don, I love Dawn of War, I love the whole Warhammer universe and everything, and I i sometimes wonder how my life would have turned out if I went to, well, not Montreal, to Vancouver and worked on, worked for THQ. But I took the EA job because it felt like more of a career move, like, a, like I would be working in more of a kind of, almost like a lead role. So I took that job, you know, thinking it would advance my career, And, you know, I tried to like be into the project, but the project itself, I just, I just wasn't, I wasn't committed, you know, I just, I couldn't drink that Kool-Aid, you know? So, um, and then when I went to, um, to the company in Boston, it was kind of the same thing. Like I, the project was fun and it was really hard, but, um, you know, I, I just wasn't super into the the core idea, like I wrote at EverQuest, like EverQuest, I played it. I was like, "This is awesome! Like, this is a, a an avenue for me. really cool, fun stuff." And it's all here, and I have the tools to make it happen. That's uh, I had a ton of fun doing that. But there was a, you know, there was a guy at the um, another line I worked with at Tencent. This guy Matt, who, uh, you know, he he said, "Take it till you make it," and I. I can't. I can't do that. Like I can't. Some people are good at doing. They're good at their job, and they can. They can. They have the discipline to make it work. But uh, I just can't. <laughs> I have to be really into a project uh, to be able to excel at it. And, uh, uh, it's that's it's hard to come back sometimes.
0: Yeah. No. I. I. A hundred percent can relate to that. And. If I'm not into it, it's real, it's real rough.
1: It's a drag.
0: I just feel dishonest almost, right? Like I just don't want to, you know, this is something uh, Jasmine and I have talked about in the past as well. I'm like, I'd rather put myself at jeopardy in a sense and go try to figure something else out, even without a good plan in place, than to keep going to a place where I'm not excited. Um. And it's just—it's weird. It's counterintuitive. It's definitely—you know—I've—I've I've run into it in the past where I'm like, oh, "This is not the smart move I'm making," um, but it's—it's definitely—you know—something that I felt. Um, turnip has an interesting point in here. Uh, I saw you smirk. Was it at the you you, forso- <laughs> you forsook, the god <laughs> I forsook the
1: god emperor? emperor yes, I did. Uh, and you know, I some of the best years of my life were in San Francisco and I really kind of where I I, wish I I just I love that place and that was I experienced that because of EA but uh, sometimes I wish I had gone to THQ THQ in Vancouver I think they uh, tanked as well later on so you know I, I, I don't know it would have been interesting to see how that turned out
0: yeah and to Term's point um, don't doubt your abilities. Imposter syndrome is a real thing, but you can always hang your hat on the fact that you've made a game beloved by many thousands of people to the point where we are still playing 20 years later. Um, I program for a career every day, and imposter syndrome is something I struggle with on bad days. I struggle with it on good days. <laughs> I struggle with it just period. It's yeah. it's insane. Absolutely. It's so tough. Then,
1: there were times on Robot Rising, I, so I was in the of worried the. About- Story such as it was and uh, the char- character progression kind of stuff and um, I, I didn't really have the math skills to make it very uh, elegant, uh, kind of written. but um, and it just every day felt like I, I don't know that I can I'm smart enough to do it I don't and it is a it is totally a thing the posture syndrome it just takes a lot of work to on um, that
0: I uh- and I don't know a solution to it. Like I've never gotten beyond it. I, I struggle with it constantly. Like it's always, it's always, and it's so weird too. Because it for me, it'll also come in waves. Like there will be those times where I'm like, oh, I got clearly I know this, and then something will happen. I'll be like, oh shit! Like did I somehow stumble into this place? Like who did I? Who did I trick? How did I trick <laughs> them? Were they stoned that day? Like. You know, like how do, I, how do I make it through this interview, right? And it's such a thing to contend with, especially when you're you know you've got a team relying on you or a, a group of people, or as a designer, people coming to you for answers. And it's like, what the hell do I know?
1: Yeah, I uh, I still I have anxiety anxiety dreams where I'm sitting in the office and some Chinese person I've never met before comes into my office to tell me I'm fired. <laughs> But from you know working on Tencent, it's it's uh, it's really uh, it's difficult to to deal with that. But I, I want to tell one quick story about that that makes me feel really good about uh, the time I spent on M Q since uh, Turnup up it up. But uh, I was one of the quests I did as I did a, a quest line for X R Warriors for for armor. Um. And so the idea of each piece of armor, you were supposed to go to a different guild leader and learn what it meant to, you know, what it meant to be a shadow knight or a shaman or something like that. And, um, you know, I had a warrior on the main server. That was my main character. And so I, and so did you. I think you had a dark elf warrior or something.
0: I had a, a half elf warrior, but I, I preferred the dark elf look. Yep.
1: Oh, right. That's right. Um, so, uh, so I really felt I understood the kind of, uh, the, the warrior and kind of the spirit of, you know, the, the quest. And, uh, so I, I something like, uh, you know, so what was it, you know, as a warrior, you know, our role is to protect the other, you know, our leaders. And, um, it was, there was some line in there, in the quest dialogue that said, you know, when others fall to spear and swords, we must stand. <laughs> and, uh, that was, uh, really dramatic to me. And I really, really liked that. Um, I, I thought it was really fitting when others fall to spear and Swords, we must stand. So, um, in, in one of those quests, you're supposed to go to um, the shadow knight guild leader and they, they send you on this quest. And the story is that you, uh, there's this, you know, uh, apprentice like Shadow Knight who went on a mission and get you know, he was captured and he's he's in ca- Dalmir I think it was the the, the, dungeon, the dungeon that had the floating mouths uh, Dalmir or something I don't know but, but he's in there and you're supposed to you know he got captured uh, so go down and find him and take care of it. And the quest dialogue is very vague. It just says, like, just just take care of it. You know, there's n- there's no uh, really specific um, goal. <clears throat> so you go down there, and you find the guy, and he is, uh, he's trapped. He's, like, standing next to um, uh, some shackles. And you inhale him, and he tells you, oh, man, thanks for, you know, not <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, thanks for, for coming to save me. I'm locked up here. Uh, what you need to do is get me some, uh, serrated wire to cut through the lock and then I can, um, I can, uh, escape. So, you know, based on that quest dialogue, we're like, okay, fine, I'll go kill some dwarves and get some serrated wire and, and you bring it back to him and you free him and then he's like, oh, all right, thanks a lot. I'm gonna go back to the, to the guild leader and tell you how good you did saving me and he reward you. And he gives you this icon, and, and you take it back to him. And if you that, uh, the shadow Knight takes the icon and uh, tells you you failed. You, you did what? You saved him? And he throws the icon in the pond and uh, tells you you're an idiot, and the quest just ends. Um, but, uh, so, <laughs> uh, I was looking at my quest, I'm sure you did this as well when you were a designer, that you go to Alakazam and you check out your old quests and see people's comments on your quest. And um, somebody had posted, like, hey, I did this quest and I saved the guy and I turned in the icon and the guild master an idiot and threw the icon in the water. Is this, is this quest broken or something? <laughs> and somebody commented, like, no, it's not broken. Think about it. You're, you're, a, you're a shadow knight. And you have this guy, an evil Shadow Knight, who failed, and the guild master took care of like, do what needs to be done. So, what you're supposed to do is just kill the guy. <laughs> he, drops a, he drops a heart, and you uh, turn in the heart, and he's like, okay, good. You did the right thing. You killed the guy. He was a failure. <laughs> Here's your quest armor. And, so, and what's cool is the guy who made this comment said, hey, just think about it as a, you know, think about yourself as a character here. The guy who posted that, his um, his signature in the post was like, you know, such and such from this server. And, you know, I used to post in forums, they'd have their signature and might have an inspirational quote or something. Yeah. The inspirational quote in his signature was, uh, when others fall to spear and sword, we must <laughs> So, so badass it, it was so cool <laughs> like, I felt so good about that that's like my favorite uh, memory in, in my time as a designer was having somebody my, uh, my quest catalog
0: dude that's such a good story
1: <laughs>
0: that's such a so that's so meta to be honest the story you just told was fantastic the story <laughs> was about a quest that you wrote right And you kicked it off. I mean, that was a beautiful brick. Opening, ending, Jeremy. (laughs) Dude, you are a great storyteller. You're a great storyteller. And, And honestly, man, like, go back through. Watch this VOD. Skip over me talking too much in different spots. I do that shit. Just fucking, you can watch it. Like, when my mouth's moving, just move through that. Get back to the stuff that you said and look at look at the stuff that you worked on look at the stories that you've written look at the responses in chat because they're in there when you watch the vods you can see the chat on the side like you write deep stuff man like you write really solid deep get you thinking style shit right and i think that's that's you've got to do you at this point, right? Like you've got to do whatever is working for you at the moment. But if you have some extra time to just like jot some stuff down, if you, if you can put a, put aside a little hobby day here and there, you know, and like, just think about what you'd like to write. Don't think about where it's going. Don't think about what it's like, you know, Does this commercial, does this mean, you know, do I need to work towards making a thing that people consume, but like, just continue to stoke that fire and then see what happens. And like I said, man, we're in discord. We're going to be around this community's, you know, here. Um, You've written fantastic stuff. And it's funny, like when you go back and explain it at the beginning, when you're going through the quest and like the thinking and stuff that's in it. It's just a fun way of writing as well, man. It's not like me. I Yeah, look and chat. This is, this is how I operate. I was given a tunnel. Lawrence, Lawrence Poe was like, hey, man, I got this space over here. There's nothing in it. Maybe put an encounter or something in there. It's kind of a dead spot. This is my level of sophistication. I look at it and go, dude, there's nothing over here. It's like a room with a tunnel. <laughs> what can I do with a tunnel? I can put a big worm in it. I wonder if I can make the worm big enough to fill the tunnel. That was my technical challenge. Can we scale this worm big enough to fill this tunnel properly? I'd probably spent a third of my time implementing that encounter, just scaling the worm to fit in a tunnel the right way. <laughs> That's it, that, you know, and so like I'm not sitting here like thinking deep shit and like telling beautiful stories, so yeah, man, I don't know. I'm excited I'm excited that we. I'm excited that this, is, this stream has triggered us catching up. And I'm excited to hear the stories that you just told. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely excited for us to sort of keep talking. And, and I'm, I'm really curious to see if that fire starts for you.
1: Well, yeah, I'm definitely going to hit up uh, Turnip there and talk about uh Banner Award because there is some stuff I do there. But uh, yeah, no, this is super inspiring, and it's really exciting to see everybody really excited about this. You know, and I, this uh, project ninety or yeah, project nineteen ninety nine. It's like a uh, people know who it is, what it is here. It seems yeah, they got it. But um, oh, there's my cat. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the people. There are people who have never played a request. People who you know, they're like teenagers. Uh, playing a game that's 20 years old and they're like super into it. it really, uh, that's that's something special. I mean, right. To be a part of something like that. It's-
0: yeah. There are people literally playing your content for the first time right now. Yeah. <laughs> they're hearing, they're, they're going through the stories for the first time. And Kunark's coming up, right? So we're playing right, yeah. on Aerodune. Uh-huh. Kunark. Kunark's coming up, so a lot of that's still to come. and Yeah, and then Velius. So we've still got a good ways ahead of us of, of playing through your content.
1: Yeah. So there's more I want to ask you about um, combat stuff, but we'll leave that for another time. Now. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it sounds like a good time to maybe um, to uh, wrap it up.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah, it's, uh, it's 1030 here. We usually go to around 11 before Jasmine starts kicking me. Um, but <laughs> She's laughing in the background. But yeah, dude. And as Turnip said, please come back on the stream. Um, you're already in Discord with us. Uh, you'll be talking to Turnip. We'll get back on the stream. And what I'm hoping to do is as we get more people on, um, we'll have – there's always opportunity. Todd was just on bullshit with me yesterday while I was trying to test some stuff for another two hours. It was great. Um. yeah come back on I want to get some of the other people together as well if we can somehow figure out how to get video to work for one guest then maybe I can get it to work for two or three I've got the feeling it's going to be zoom or something Um. Mm-hmm. yeah and then we can see how much how many more gaps we can sort of uncover and fill but it's been dude <laughs> this has been so much fun yeah super fun
1: uh, alright thanks Sean Um And thanks everybody in chat. Um, Thanks for all the encouragement. Uh, I really enjoy talking with everybody. I'm excited to go through the stream later on.
0: (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. Rewatch it. Um, We'll both cringe at our voices because that's always (laughs) like, I always hate hearing myself, but dude, go through and just, yeah, pick up on that vibe and let's, let's get creative again. Cool, man. Good night. Bye, Jeremy. Oh man, that last story, dude. That last story. Jasmine, you missed it. You'll have to you'll have to watch the VOD. Cause you can only hear my end. Mine mine was not the good end. Jeremy's was the good end. It was just such a great story. Good night.